Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, sitting here in my home bedroom studio in Oxford and thrilled that through the power of the internet and today also through the power of FaceTime, which I guess is the internet as well, I am able to both hear and see my beloved co-host Octavia, who is far away in London in her own studio. So Octavia, how are you doing? I'm very happy that I can also see you as well, because the last time we recorded, we didn't have um, eyes on one another and it was kind of weird, wasn't it? Um, but apart from that, I'm okay. You look great. Oh, thanks, babe. So do you. <laughs> <laughs> Sunlight streaming through the window. Other than that, I think ambivalence is kind of my permanent state right now. Like I'm, I'm really thrilled about the sunshine and also really devastated about the state of things. And it's kind of confusing trying to hold both extremes in my heart and my mind at once. But, you know, on we go, right? <laughs> yep. Yep, show must go on. And as we mentioned last episode, please bear with us on the sound quality front. We're dealing with very makeshift studios and microphones right now. And also my neighbours are liable to begin mowing their lawns or as they did earlier, chainsawing their trees at any moment. So (laughs) just FYI. How about you though, Carrie? How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. I think ambivalence is a really good way to put it. I seem to veer between intense joy and intense sadness. Like I went for a walk the other day and I couldn't stop just opining about the beauty of the sunset. But then I got home and got really sad about the news. So um, yeah, it's a roller coaster for me. But I am feeling really grateful for family and friends and the fact that I'm still able to see them. And as always, very, very glad that we figured out a way to keep doing Literary Friction And not only to keep doing literary friction, but to bring you interviews with authors that we really, really love. That's right. And we're so excited that this month we're going to be talking to Jenny Offill, whose new novel, Weather, is a sharp, insightful meditation on how regular humans process catastrophe, which feels pretty apt. Weather is particularly about the climate crisis, but as you might imagine, it's become weirdly relevant in our current situation too. And we couldn't think of another author that we wanted to talk to more right now, actually, and just process what's going on with. But rather than bring you a show about catastrophe, which we didn't want to do, and we didn't think you would want us to do either, we are going to make a show about hope. We've been inspired by the idea of an obligatory note of hope the name of a website that Jenny set up with resources, which she includes at the end of the book. So in addition to talking to Jenny, we'll be talking about what it means for a book to be hopeful and which books and authors have personally given us hope. But before we get to the interview, can you introduce Jenny Octavia? I sure can. Jenny Offill's novel Department of Speculation, which we both absolutely loved, was shortlisted for the Folio Prize and the International Dublin Literary Award and selected as a book of the year by The Guardian, The New York Times, Vanity Fair and Vogue. She's the author of the novel Last Things and four books for children as well. And she lives in upstate New York with her family. So today you'll hear our interview with Jenny, we'll talk more generally about hope in literature, and finally, we will give our usual book recommendations. So Pandora, shut that box just in time and join <laughs> us for the next hour on Literary Friction. I'm losing my mind. <laughs> Pandora. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Jenny Offill, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you for having me. So we've asked you to start with a reading from Weather. Could you set it up for us? Yes, um, I'm going to read just a little ways in. um, And the narrator of the book uh, works in a university library. And this is one of the scenes um, 
starts out in the library and then it continues on in her home with her husband and her son. This woman who comes in is a shrink, also a Buddhist. She likes to practice one or the other on me, I've noticed. You seem to identify down, not up, she says. Why do you think that is? You tell me, lady. On Tuesdays, she teaches a meditation class in the basement. It is open to the whole community, not just university people. I've noticed that the teacher listens differently than I do. She pays attention, but leaves her own stories out of it. It's slow today, so I help her set up for class. Cushions for the strong, chairs for the weak. You should stay, she tells me, but I never do. Not sure where to sit. There's a sign on our elevator saying it is out of order. I stand there looking at it as if it might change. Mrs. Kavinsky comes into the lobby. They'll let anyone be super now, she tells me. Anyone. I get the mail, put off making my slow way up the stairs. The fancy preschool still sends us the newsletter. This one features a list of the top 10 fears reported by their students. Darkness doesn't make the cut. Blood, sharks, and loneliness are eight, nine, and 10. When I come in, the dog is sleeping under the table. My son is folding a piece of plain white paper. Don't look, he says. I'm inventing this. No one will ever know what I've done, except me. I don't look. I put out kibble and water, peer open-heartedly into the fridge. The window is open. It's nice out. The pigeons aren't on the fire escape. There are some pots left over from last summer's tomato experiment. Whoosh, my son says. My number one fear is the acceleration of days. No such thing, supposedly. But I swear, I can feel it. Jenny, thank you so much for reading. That was great. Yeah. So I wanted to start by asking you about the idea of twilight knowing, which is something you've discussed in other interviews. Can you explain what that concept is and how it fits into this novel and the narrative of this novel? Well, I got the idea from a book by um, sociologist Stanley Cohen, who wrote a book called States of Denial, Knowing About Atrocities and Suffering. And I, I found this book when I was trying to figure out stuff about climate change denial, but that wasn't specifically what he was talking about. He was talking about what does it mean to know that there is some kind of trouble coming or know that there is some kind of uh, darkness or disaster coming down the pike, but not looking directly at it, not letting yourself know that you know. And he named this twilight knowing. And I thought to myself that it was the perfect description of what I'd been feeling for a long time, which was that I knew a certain amount. And this had to do sometimes with, um, sometimes with the climate crisis, sometimes with sort of systemic injustices in my own country. But the part where if you don't look directly at it, there's still things you don't know and you stay a bit in the dark. I wanted to write the novel kind of exploring what it would mean to move out of that twilight knowing. 
And did you find that process difficult? Um, because obviously in writing the novel, you have to move out of the twilight knowing just as the character is wrestling with this precipice herself. Yeah, I found it terrifying. I mean, <laughs> I, I found it, um, I, I, I kept thinking when I first started reading all the things about climate, I kept thinking, well, why did I do this? You know what? This is terrible. I can't unknow this now. I can't, I can't go back to what, uh, to sort of what I thought before, which was that this was something that was uh, going to affect people many, many years from now, but wasn't necessarily going to um, arrive anytime soon. And, um, but I also find that I'm the kind of person, I actually feel better when I know things, no matter how dark they are. So, you know, before I had a baby, I was desperately trying to find an account of someone writing about what it was like to have be in labor that told it in all its pain. <laughs> and everything felt strangely euphemistic to me. I was like, no, I want to hear the part that will be scary because I feel like knowledge uh, makes me feel better. And like right now with um, this pandemic, um, as soon as I started learning about it, I just wanted to keep seeking information because uh, I don't know, denial just isn't a very comfortable state for me. Once I start to know something, I want to keep going towards it. What kind of research did you have to do to understand not only the climate crisis and, and as you say, the way you, in, in the book, you also connect it to the sort of political crisis that's happening in our world, but also to understand how people might think about it? To be fair, I, I, I'm not sure I can say I understand it completely at all. <laughs> yeah, that's but, fair. Um, but I will say that um, at a certain point, I realized that I must have read, <laughs> you know, 30, 30 or so books about climate um, that were being approached from all different angles. Sometimes it would be from a psychological study of what it would mean. Sometimes it would be uh, straight up science about it. Sometimes it would be about climate communication. And then it was just very funny at the end of the novel to realize how little of that had gone in to the novel. I sort of was joking that I'd apparently read like 30 books to get two actual sentences in that were factual. Um, <laughs> but that's because halfway through, I just decided I, uh, I think a lot of people are doing that really well. They're, they're telling the factual story. Um, there's a lot of great nonfiction books out now. And I just actually read a new one um, that's coming out in April that's called Notes for an Apocalypse, which I swear to God is like the nonfiction version of weather. It's crazy. But so I was interested more in what would it be like to write about that feeling of climate unease and climate dread. And there's a moment in weather where Lizzie, the main character, says, uh, young person worry. What if nothing I do matters? Old person worry. What if everything I do does? And I feel like that was a little bit encapsulated what it was like to first start researching it because you begin thinking you might know words like, you know, interconnected and all those sort of things. But if you really read about it, the just, I don't know what the word is exactly, but 
the precariousness of it all, of how things need to fit together and hold together just becomes apparent. Listening to you then made me think about the fact that you talk a lot in this book about paying attention and the act of paying attention and how we don't pay attention to so much because we can't pay attention to everything. Our brains become overloaded by the information, but learning what to pay attention to at what time can change so much what someone's experience of the world actually is. And it feels like the message of the book or one of the messages in the book is our first step towards relating to climate change in reality and not being in denial is just by paying attention. But mm-hmm. I wonder like, what comes next, you know, what comes after that attention? Well, I feel like um, there's an environmental philosopher, Timothy Morton, and he said, in one of his books, um, hesitation is an ecological act. And I do think, you know, I wrote this book over a series of six or seven years. And I certainly, it took me a long time to move out of some of my earlier ideas into, into where I landed. I think that I at least have always been kind of sold the idea that trying to take action against climate change and its consequences was all about what you had to do as an individual. It was all about purifying yourself, making the perfect choices, um, a certain kind of sacrifice. Um, and, and then as I read on and on, I just realized like, first of all, a lot of those talking points come from actual right-wing think tanks that mm. were part of the uh, global war- warming you know, industrial denial industry, which is quite amazingly large. Um, And I just thought that I really feel like it's important to come from wherever you are. So, you know, my joke about it is like activism for hypocrites, but I feel like for some people, it's going to be, it's going to be that they, they change the way they eat. For some people, it's going to be the way that they change the way that they travel for some people. And this was me for many years. I didn't want to talk to other people about climate change. I don't want to be the sort of weirdo at the party that's making everything do me. But I was sort of like, okay, that's what I do. I talk, I write, I'm going to go out of my comfort zone by doing this. And I thought by writing this book about this, that uh, there was a really big chance that I would write a bad book that felt, you know, like a terrible, (laughs) a terrible thing about how it just seems so hard to write about climate change in an interesting way. So I feel like in some ways, the looking for the big thing, the thing you're supposed to do, um, I think is paralyzing. And in at least for me, it was kind of like a soft form of denial in the same way that like fatalism is of like, oh, it's already too late. It doesn't matter. Um, I feel like everyone's talking about Camus' book, The Plague, suddenly. But um, I I read it for, for writing weather. And he talks about this idea of active fatalism, that you have to go forward fumbling in the dark and trying to do what is good, even if you don't know if it will work. And that's, he says, that the only thing that will save them from the plague is, is not heroicism, but decency. So I think it's each person finding that what that is and and starting to do it quietly or or loudly but ideally collectively it was really meaningful for me to read this novel you know i've i've 
been starting to try to read nonfiction about climate change, although it's hard, and I do think it's hard to write books about it as well as you say, but just something that captured the feelings that we've been talking about and, and that paralysis that comes with thinking about climate change and, and other crises and how we might sort of move on from those feelings. And I wonder if you see this novel and fiction more generally as having a sort of role to play in maybe the moral project of changing people's minds about things like did did you want to change people's minds by writing this novel or did you just want to capture the feeling of something I think I'm always interested in trying to capture the feeling of of something of what it feels like to be alive at a particular time but I did want to maybe make a narrative in which there wasn't a blasted out apocalyptic landscape. There wasn't necessarily any heroic actions or giant epiphanies, but it was more about like, how do we live with dread? I mean, this has become uh, something that everyone is thinking about now since the pandemic. How do we live with dread? And um, in many ways, this was not the apocalypse uh, that I planned for <laughs> because um, I didn't imagine that we would all be talking to each other in little boxes. <laughs> and I didn't imagine that you could drive around in your car, but not gather with your friends for a dinner. Um, but I feel like I wasn't, I'm not really that prescriptive as a writer. So I don't know if I wanted people's minds to change. I guess I just wanted to provide a space in which to think about the climate emergency and sort of what it meant to feel sadness or grief or fear or anger, or even to find it absurd and funny. All of that, I felt like I just wanted that range of emotion in a book about climate change. Well, one of the things I loved about it is that like um, your last novel as well, Department of Speculation, it's also partly about intimacy and the kind of complex way in which we continue to have something that is both as small and massive as intimacy alongside something that is as unfathomable as climate crisis in some ways. Um, and the way that you shape Lizzie's life around, you know, she has her marriage and she has her son and she has her brother who's a drug addict who um, needs a lot from her as well. There's a lot about caretaking going on, right? And I wonder, do, do you think that we humans have a limited capacity for caring? Or do you think it, it can expand exponentially the more demands that are placed upon us? Well, I think that We've always survived. Um, human beings have always survived through bonding together. Um, I mean, that's one of the things about the sort of prepper world, uh, which is about sort of circling your wagons and, and staying in, and is that in general, um, people have made it through disasters and other moments in history um, through finding a kind of solidarity. And it, it's, a, it's a myth that people act at their worst during disasters. Often they're at their most altruistic. And you can see some of that happening right now. I do think that, you know, everyone knows a Lizzie and I myself am a bit of a bit of a Lizzie, which is that 
I find it hard not to take in the emotional life and drama of those I spend time with, even if I just spend a little time with them. I sort of feel like my antenna for what's going on with people is always up. And so the distress calls that you you get, I mean, one time it may be from the guy driving the taxi, and sometimes it might be from the person on the street who is homeless, and sometimes it might be from your student or your son. And I think what Lizzie's trying to do is figure out she already worries about lots of people and she already tries to figure out ways to help lots of people that are beyond her family. But she's quite daunted by the idea that she might have to worry about an even larger circle. What does it mean to extend that circle of care towards strangers, towards even towards those who you might vehemently disagree with? What does it mean to caretake in that way? And I'm I'm just really interested in that myself. Like I I grew up with sort of a Christian background and there was lots of stuff I didn't take from it. But the part that was kind of there, but for the grace of God go I, uh, was pretty, pretty well wired into me. So it's hard for me to see someone in a hard situation and not imagine that that just as easily could have been me. I don't I don't tend to feel like people are responsible in some ways for the hard times that come upon them. I feel like we could all have that happen to us very easily. I want to come back because we've, I mean, we've been having a pretty serious conversation. Maybe these are serious subjects and (laughs) we're living through a serious time, but I don't want listeners of this podcast who haven't read the book yet to come away with the impression that this is an incredibly serious and not funny book because it's incredibly funny and you know you even write out jokes sometimes but I laughed a lot throughout this book and I know it kills the joke when you um ask somebody about humor in the first place but I I wonder I'm just always really interested in in how writers think about the funny bits of their book like do you know you're being funny do you do you like including jokes? Do you think about the balance of, of the sort of weight of the, these big moral questions and some of the, the funnier bits when you're writing? I do, because I just think that, you know, in general, anything that's about environmental stuff tends to have a kind of deadly earnestness, um, which is one of the reasons I never felt any interest in being involved in (laughs) any of the movement um, before this, because I would always be like, oh, and then the jokes that were there were sort of puns or were just like, just not my cup of tea. So I did think, okay, this novel is not going to be bearable unless it's also funny. And I wanted to create a character who sort of, that was her main way of coping with the world was to make sort of dark jokes about it. And she and her brother, you know, share this trait. And so I just felt like I would feel like I wrote a passage and then I would think about a sort of tonal shift. I don't know. I made up some jokes for it. And I, uh, but a lot of it is just kind of deadpan that uh, something comes, you know, after after what seems like a serious thing, there's a way that it's kind of deflated by a joke. For example, towards the end, you know, she's been reading all these prepper tips and she's out shopping 
And then she remembers this prepper tip, which is an actual one that I remember reading in like an army book. It says, you can obtain plants more easily and more quietly than meat. This is extremely important when the enemy is near. So she like buys to, she buys a cucumber. And then <laughs> um, I think of this now whenever I'm shopping, I'm like, ooh, more easily and quietly than meat. Um, but but I also like a sort of deflation of the self-seriousness of preparing for for doom. So the next paragraph is, then one day I have to run to catch a bus. I am so out of breath when I get there that I know in a flash all my preparations for the apocalypse are doomed. I will die early and ignobly. <laughs> so sometimes it's meant to just be like a little amusing thing. And sometimes it's meant to show another side of the character that she can see around herself a little bit so that she isn't just completely caught up in this anxiety. She also has the ability to kind of step back and that's what humor is really. And that's why it's considered the best of the coping mechanisms. There we go. <laughs> it's definitely my favorite one as well. Um, but th- talking of coping mechanisms, can you tell us about obligatory note of hope? It's a phrase that comes up in the novel. And then there's also the website at the end. And uh, yeah, just I'd love to hear about it. Well, in the in the book, the way it comes in in the book is that uh, Sylvia, the who runs the podcast, and at one point, Lizzie calls her up and she says, oh, I can't talk right now. Um, I have to write an article for someone and I have to put in the obligatory note of hope. And if you've read much environmental stuff, you will quickly notice that that is a real thing, that there'll be just like terrible, terrible, terrible statistics, horrible predictions, like all these animals are dying, all these things will happen. And then there'll just be this weird, like false seeming uplift at the end, where it sort of like says, if every single people work together immediately right now, um, we can all do this and everything will be fine. And so I was thinking in this book, at the end of the novel, like I did end this novel in my own mind, feeling much more hopeful than I felt in the middle of it. And I'd come across in my research, lots of people that I thought were doing interesting things and lots of sort of what I thought of as like emotional prepper tips, like people who've lived through terrible times. I feel like I need to make a pandemic version of this now because too many of them are about <laughs> yes, other people. I think I'm going to make a pandemic version. But I thought to myself, oh, I really want to put these in, you know, whether it was the story of like one neighbor talking about what she did during the siege of Sarajevo. And she talks about how they would give presents to each other and the presents might be very, very small. They might be like a pie with no filling. It was just made of flour and water. But there was something about tying that with a little piece of string and giving it to someone that that during these times, like to wrap a string around that as if it were a gift was one of the things that sort of made people feel normal and made people feel like there was some hope. So I decided at the end of the novel, I didn't want to falsify the hopefulness of it. Um, So I had this idea that it would be interesting to like make an auxiliary website where I put that, what I'd found and also gave options for people of how to join in collective action. So that's what I did. And I'm still working on it. It's kind of a work in progress. But the reason I put it 
away from the end of the book is that I wanted you to be able to choose or not <laughs> if you wanted to, if you felt like you wanted another layer of hope to this, then it's there. But if you felt like like there was enough already in the novel, then it's also meant to stand on its own. I like that. I'd love to ask you about the way that you've written this novel, um, which is, it, it's in the same way as the Department of Speculation. It's sort of little fragments, um, paragraphs of text. And it's it's a very unique way of writing. And I wonder if you thought about whether you wanted to write this novel in the same style as your previous novel and what that process was like and what you find exciting about the form. I struggled for a while with whether I wanted to have a really big stylistic change in this novel because there is a big one from my first to my second. Um, but ultimately, I realized I, I, I felt very much like I found a voice I wanted to write in with Department of Speculation and that that kind of fragmentary, um, I think of it sort of like a magpie way of writing where I just kind of collect things that seem shiny to me and then build a nest around them. This is that kind of magpie um, way of gathering things, I think is much, much closer to how I think than a linear straightforward narrative. I always feel like I'm interested in how things that seem like they're tangents come actually back to the original idea. So this method of of having things sort of set apart from each other, in this novel also there's the questions that are sent to um, the podcast, Hell and High Water. So those are also marked out separately. But I feel like it allows me to one, well, the hope is that it's not claustrophobic to stay in this person's uh, so so closely aligned to her view because mm-hmm. I'm trying to bring in some other textures and some other feelings of that something is a bit funny or something is a bit strange or the language. Oh, here's some language that like the epigraph of epigraph of the book is something that's from like uh, 1760. So it has a very different kind of cadence to it. So I feel like by having the white space between things, I hope that it allows the reader to kind of collaborate in a way with me on the book and bring their own train of associations to it. But I do kind of, I sort of know, I know when it's where it should be. It takes me a long time sometimes to figure that out, but it does have a very particular kind of almost like a click when it when it's where it should be in terms of juxtapositions. Do you find it annoying that your interviews about this book have just turned into people talking, asking you about the pandemic? I was wondering that. I was like, I feel like you've written one book and it is sort of turned into another book, but at the same time, you seem in a really good position to be able to talk about what we're experiencing right now. I don't find it annoying. I worry, of course, that I I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> I feel like uh, also... It's very, uh, people keep asking me to write like pandemic journals, you know, like for, for different people. And I've, I've shied away from that because I really don't, it's one thing to talk about it. I mean, everyone's talking about it. This is what I talk about with my friends. This is what I talk about with my family. Um, who could not talk about it? It's like, 
going on in everyone's lives. But I think that in terms of where it intersects with weather is, is just, I just read so much disaster psychology and some of it is interesting to kind of apply to it because one of the things I just realized when I was reading disaster psychology was they just find over and over that people are very afraid to be wrong about whether something is a disaster, a potential disaster. Wow. And so people are so worried about being alarmist and so worried about um, how other people around them are not acting alarmed. Um, but if you, if you read what disaster psychologists say, they're always the ones that say, yeah, whenever I get on a plane, I look and make sure the thing's really under the seat. If I go on a boat, a ferry, I find out where the life jackets are. Because what they've discovered is that people need to rehearse disaster a little bit in their minds to be able to not just be paralyzed in the moment by the normalcy bias. And the normalcy bias is just, it's what it, it's what it sounds like. It's that our brains are used to taking these mental shortcuts. And so when something happens, we try to compare it to something else that has happened to us. And 80% of the time this works. But, you know, that's why when you're on a plane, they tell you always in the briefing not to take your luggage. Because what happens is a plane will crash land and people will see flames around them and their brain will say, when you get off a plane, you get your, you open the overhead bin and get your luggage. And then people die because of that. And so I think that the main thing with this pandemic was that you should do as much as you possibly can without worry of being alarmist to keep yourself safe and to help keep others safe. And so that was really, I guess, where it crossed over. And, and as I was saying earlier, just the, it's been, it's almost like the fear that I had reading about the climate crisis and about how interconnected everything was and how that was quite beautiful when it worked, but quite scary when it fell apart. And then I feel like the pandemic was just like, uh, you know, distilling this in such an extreme way where everything truly is connected. And you look at every doorknob and every thing that you touch and you wonder about all the other people that have touched it. So in those ways, I guess I, I started to cross, cross the two a little in my mind. But I feel like, you know, we are so early into this that it's no time yet to figure out what any of it means, which is another reason I guess I won't write about it because we're just, we're just living it right now. And mm -hmm. the living it part is, is hard enough. And I think it requires sort of all our will and our goodness that we can muster to just get through our days now. I mean, it really does feel like a war right now. Yeah. I know that certain things that never got through to me, no matter how much I read about uh, climate, you know, I still would throw away so much stuff in my, from my refrigerator because I'm just a wasteful person. Now I'm like, oh, I don't want to go to the grocery store. I, 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 I guess I will save this scrap of onion. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I realized, like, of course, that's the way many people live in many parts of the world. And of course, the way people have lived in the age before we kind of had things immediately when we wanted them. Um, but it's interesting to me because in all of that 
that still kind of quite hadn't gotten through. And now there's a great line in, um, in MFK Fisher's uh, book, How to Cook a Wolf. And I include that in my obligatory note of hopes. One of the tips is about you start to notice what it means to use this amount of butter versus that. And that the sort of significance of all the food you eat becomes, I don't know, there's something kind of radiant about it. Like I feel like I keep seeing these objects, these foods, these things, and and it's almost like they have a little line around them so that I notice them instead of not noticing them like I usually I, am. I know what you mean. It's a, There's a sense that it's like waking up to the fact that you already have enough and, and you yes. didn't know before. <laughs> and now suddenly you look around and you're like, oh, I have enough. I have enough clothes. I have enough security. I have, you know, I, it's not the time to demand more and actually, wow, I can't believe how greedy I've been. That's kind of how mm-hmm. I find myself feeling. Well, the whole shopping thing, the way that it just sort of goes up in smoke is really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I've heard a lot of, sociologists talk about this in general, that one of the reasons that it's hard to organize people politically anymore is that we've we've been sort of convinced that we're consumers instead of citizens and that that's how we express ourselves. And that's how we, um, you know, make a dent in the world by this or that thing that we wear or say or um, do on, on the consumer basis. But I do feel like that idea of how much is enough is maybe what will ultimately translate over. I I love travel and I just, I mean, I was sort of like, okay, all these trips got canceled. I was already feeling guilty that I was flying so much, but it's interesting to realize like, okay, now I've just been within a mile of my home for three and a half weeks. What does that feel like? Jenny, I felt, Thank you so much for coming on Larry Friction. I feel like you were just the person that I needed to talk about, <laughs> talk about what's happening in the world right now. So, so thank you for gracing us with your presence and your oh, ideas and great your wonderful novel. Thank you. This episode is sponsored by Picador, and seeing as it looks like quarantine will be the status quo for a little while longer, we wanted to talk about some more of Picador's books that would be the perfect escape whilst staying at home. Yes, and for the time being, a lot of local bookshops are still finding ingenious ways to get books to you. So if you're running out of reading material, don't despair and check out your favorite independent bookshop social media because they'll be telling you how you can order. Um, A couple of my favorites are taking orders over Instagram, for example. Yes. So if you like the sound of these recommendations from Picador, then look them up and see if you can get them sent over. Absolutely. For example, if you would like to be transported into a wild, sexy world of metamorphosis in the 90s queer scene, then read Andrea Lawler's Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl immediately. Described as a 90s punk version of Virginia Woolf's Orlando, it's a fast-paced, speculative adventure following gender-fluid shapeshifter Paul Polydorus's travels across queer America and a brilliant distraction from the world today. It's also very hot. Yeah, you loved that book. I really did, yeah. And sometimes there's no better escape than a feel-good novel, and a brilliant one from the archives is Matthew Quick's The Silver Linings Playbook. Published by Picador a decade ago, it was subsequently adapted for a film starring Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence. The book itself is an affectionate, endearing novel about getting back on track in difficult times and would be perfect for anyone looking to lift their spirits.
This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright, my beloved, my lovely, my beautiful Octavia Bright, to talk about this month's theme, which is hope. I hope I get to see you again in the flesh one day, Octavia. Oh my God, I, I hope that too. I hope that we're able to be in the same studio as one another one day. It will be wonderful. It will, it will be. be beautiful. And we shall hug. We will. And I'm going to touch your face and my own face. <laughs> my face is dying to be touched. <laughs> <laughs> I will welcome it. But on a more serious note, or maybe not a more serious note, inspired by Jenny Offal's obligatory note of hope and frankly desperate for some hope ourselves, we wanted to talk about hope in literature today. When I was thinking about it and when we were talking about it, hope is one of those ideas that the more you try to think about what it is and what it means, it just falls apart in your hands, doesn't it? So we thought rather than trying to objectively talk about how hope has been portrayed in literature, we just wanted to talk about the things that have personally given us hope. And hope, of course, is a very personal thing, isn't it? Like the thing that gives me hope might give you great despair. It's absolutely right. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's so personal and very tender, I think, actually. Yeah. So we were aiming for a tender, personal and maybe helpful show if you feel that the things that have given us hope might give you hope too. So first, let's talk about the obligatory note of hope that we discussed with Jenny, which I, I, first of all, is just quite a funny idea, isn't it? Um, I love how she crystallized something that we'll all recognize from reading books about catastrophe, especially about climate change. And I wanted to ask you, do you think these kinds of things always succeed? And do you think we need obligatory notes of hope, especially when things are looking really bad? I think that what she does with that a statement, obligatory note of hope is condenses a lot of conflicting thoughts very elegantly because obviously when something's obligatory, it makes us think it's not very meaningful, right? It's just something that's being rolled out in order to hit a target. And hope is the opposite of that. True hope, like true embodied, emotionally felt hope is so far from being something that's obligatory. It's something that can be transcendent. So I think the way she does that is very Oh, it's, it's a big thing in her writing that she is able to be both caustic and uh, kind of emotionally elevating all in one go. Um, so I think that obligatory notes of hope in and of themselves in disaster books are terrible, yeah, because they feel disingenuous. But I think truthful embodiments of hope are so necessary and so brilliant. Um, and I actually, I love the, the version of hope laid out in the introduction to her site, Obligatory Notes of Hope, because she places it she kind of traces the space leaving space for what she calls hypocrites like her so in her matrix of this obligatory note of hope it doesn't come over as Pollyanna-ish or condescending but actually completely inclusive so she opens it with the question how can we imagine and create a future we want to live in which is a great question and something that you know ideally we are asking ourselves often as we move through the world but then she goes into how she felt that, and this is quoting, it was ridiculous to try and fight for social change when I couldn't even get my own house in order. But then she breaks that down and sees it rightly as needlessly restrictive and ends up with the statement, there's a way in for everyone. Aren't you tired of all this fear and dread? And again, I think that is the key. Like if you're feeling jaded or you're feeling resistant to the idea of hope, when you look at it from that standpoint, actually a little question like that is an incredibly hopeful thing. Um, and, and that you can be so-called hopeless in some parts of your life and yet still contribute to moving forward in a world in a different way, I think is incredibly hopeful, really inclusive. And it, it kind of works 
on the basis of don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, just because you still use bleach when you clean your house and you order too many things from Amazon doesn't mean that you can't be fighting for social and structural change. And, you know, we're all a work in progress when it comes to ironing out the negative kinks in our behavior or the learned behaviors that are damaging, right? Totally. And I think that the notion of hypocrisy really restricts a lot of good change because everyone is afraid of being a hypocrite. And the easiest way to not be a hypocrite is to not actually do anything so that you can never be called out on it. Yeah. Um, but if we're all aware of our limitations, but also the possibilities of our own lives, I think that's a really great way in. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about this because, you know, I have a lot of friends who are are really great at engaging with social justice and making changes in the world. And I've always felt so inadequate compared to them. Um, But I also see how people see those kinds of people who are so devoted to making changes in the world and want to sort of pick apart and say, oh, well, that person is a vegetarian, but then they get really drunk and order um, chicken from KFC and therefore they're a hypocrite and nothing they do matters. And I think what Jenny Offal is, is doing here is saying, you know, what they're doing is still important and yeah. we all need to be a little bit easy on ourselves and easy on other people and, and do what we can. Right. And understand that, you know, it's very natural to call each other out for hypocrisy and that that often is coming from fear as well. Like we want to topple those people we hold up as being martyrs because they make us feel bad about the limitations of our own um, progress. And actually, if you then unpick that, it's again, it's just holding us all back. Like there's room for everyone. And how brilliant that there are people out there who are working harder in this field than me. Because if everyone was just doing what I'm doing, we wouldn't get that far. But I'm also doing things in other areas that they're not doing. So how wonderful that we can come together as a collaborative, cohesive community, right? Like that's the ideal. That's the hopeful way of looking at it. What a hopeful thing to say. Right, but it's not always possible. And sometimes I'm a cranky (laughs) bitch and I don't see it, you know, right? Like that's... (laughs) Me too, babe. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, let's talk about hopefulness in books. So... I think that the question is, what does it mean for a book to be hopeful? And, you know, when I was thinking about this question myself, I I immediately thought, actually, I don't think that books are here to reassure us about the world or its future. And any book that tries to do that without cutting its own self down, I immediately distrust a bit. Um, But... I've always thought of all reading as a very hopeful act, partly because fiction in general is about the human condition. And I am an optimist when it comes to humans. I, I believe in humanity and I I believe in in people with all of their shortcomings and foibles. And I think that's part of the reason why humans are so beautiful. And partly because beautiful art makes me hopeful about the world. And some one thing that really helped me think about what it means for a book to be hopeful was Hay Festival last year asked some of the writers appearing to describe a book that gave them hope. And they said in the midst of dark times, which is so funny, like seeing seeing how we thought about dark times in 2019 as opposed to 2020. But anyway, um, I loved, I, I would recommend reading all of them because everyone has a very, very different interpretation of hope. But I loved this quote from the Welsh writer, Alice Conran, who chose Carson McCullers' The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. 
And she says, I'll be honest and say that great literature to me is work that makes us grow, sometimes painfully, instead of work that glorifies hope or perfection and happiness. After reading a great book, I can better absorb life however I find it. And I thought that was a really beautiful way of thinking about it. And I think that encapsulates books that give me the greatest hope are often quite sad or depressing, but um, they prepare me for the world and, and make me more resilient. I completely agree. And I think that the idea of hope often gets dismissed or sneered at because of the misconception that it's not a complex idea and that it is just a, a sort of simplistic way of looking at something in terms of it being, uh, yeah, p- perfection or happiness, as Alice Conran said in the quote you read. But actually, hope is a very complicated idea in some respects because it is about it is about finding as you, you know, you open with a joke about Pandora's box, but it is about finding that little white butterfly at the bottom of the whole, the quagmire of existence, really, I think. And hope and faith have a lot to do with one another. And I'm not talking about a religious context here, but just the ability to take that leap of faith and imagine that something could be different is complex. That's not a simple thing to do. And I think intellectual snobbery has a lot to answer for in conversations around hope. And we've talked before in the show about how earnestness is not very trendy and all of that kind of, that way of looking at things that's uh, kind of assumes that a cynical position is a more intellectually informed one. And I think that that can really hold us back culturally. I mean, personally, I think one of the most hopeful books I've read in in recent years was Maggie Nelson's book, The Argonauts, because of the way it argues for tender loving evolution and the kind of expansive support and radical acceptance of two human beings for one another as part of the experience of love. And the fact that they muddle through this incredibly complex, demanding relationship with one another. And none of that is simplistic or particularly reassuring, but it to me is incredibly hopeful. Yeah, that's lovely. I, well, I loved that book too. Mm, Yeah. I agree. So in terms of specific genres of books that are hopeful, I think if, if you were to ask someone, what is the most hopeful kind of book? The, the answer that you might get the most are memoirs about people overcoming intense odds or experiences. I wonder, do you find these kinds of books helpful? I was thinking about, I do like reading memoirs. And sometimes I feel a bit of a pull inside myself between the voyeur and the person who's actually interested in humans overcoming great odds. And I I felt that conflict within myself. I remember um, that book, A Child Called It by Dave Peltzer which I read in high school, a friend gave it to me and and was like, you have to read about the crazy things that this guy went through. And, um, and I kind of gobbled it up, but felt a little bit dirty afterwards. There's something kind of, there's something problematic about reading about somebody else's intense pain and suffering. And I felt that reading A Little Life, for instance, the novel as well. So what do you think about these books that are about humans overcoming great odds? I think I completely agree that memoirs like that, like a a child called it, can feel manipulative. But I also think it's important to acknowledge that they land differently with different people. And that's kind of at the heart of all of it. Like, I remember also reading A Child Called It about the same age as you, similar situation. I think a friend at school pressed it into my hand and was like, you know, this is crazy. See what other people, the ways in which other people are living or whatever. 
And I remember being completely overwhelmed by emotion at the horror of his experiences and also hooked into it in a way that similarly was uncomfortable to me. But I, I wonder now if it might land differently for someone who was the survivor of comparable abuse. There's a huge amount of power in seeing your own experiences represented like that and with a hopeful outcome, you know? Like when I first got sober, I couldn't get enough of reading memoirs by people who'd also got sober and managed to stay sober and lived a full and dynamic life or even didn't stay sober but found their way back there. Just like it was an overwhelming experience for me and I needed hopeful examples as a, a way of committing to it um, because there were so many examples of people who weren't able to do it and that was very heartbreaking um, or I'm thinking also of a friend who recently had yet another miscarriage and she said all she wanted to read afterwards were success stories of women who'd also had multiple miscarriages and then were able to have a family and she was hungry for those hopeful examples because the negative examples are everywhere but actually it can be hard to find them I think the hopeful ones so I think it's important to be sensitive about the different roles those kinds of stories play for different people um, and why it's important for those books to exist even if they don't feel relevant to you or they don't feel like something that you can consume in a particularly open-hearted way right like I'm talking you generally I'm not having a go at you <laughs> well I feel very um, attacked <laughs> no. by that very beautiful kind <laughs> point that you've made about humanity no I, I think that's a really good point and I suppose Maybe the way to think about it is just, why are you reading this book? For me, reading A Child Called It was more voyeuristic than it was hopeful yeah. and helpful. I think the same and for me, but I think also we were teenagers and part of that experience is learning what that difference feels like, right? Yeah, and I do think the publishing industry very cynically churns these things out. And it, that's not to say that they won't still be helpful to certain people. But, you know, there's even a term for them, mismems. Mm, have you heard yeah, that before? Yeah. And, and I do think we just all need to be mindful of the way that we read about other suffering. Absolutely. Seconded. Thirded. <laughs> Fourthed. <laughs> so, Octavia, can you talk a little bit about which books have personally given you hope or which writers have personally given you hope? Definitely. I mean, most recently, actually, I found Kylie Reed's book, Such a Fun Age, her novel, an intensely hopeful book, mainly because it rewrites the modern fairy tale ending in a way that is truly about empowering its female lead rather than sub subjugating her to yet more structural oppression dressed up as romance culture. But more than that, it exposes the ways in which that is the problem. And I think it really gently and encouragingly shines a light on why the what the reader might have wanted the ending to be. And then gently asks you to question why you might have wanted that, given all the information that you've had. And I don't want to give spoilers, so I'm not going to be specific. But if you do read it, I wonder, you know, listeners, like if you if you'll find the same thing. As I mentioned before, I find Maggie Nelson's writing to be really hopeful and her themes mostly aren't. But the way she interrogates structures, assumptions, thoughts and honestly, just how smart she is uh, really fills me with hope. And I, I always feel uplifted having read her work. Um, the other one that really came to mind was Patty Smith's book, Just Kids, which I go on about all the time. Have you mentioned that before? <laughs> but honestly, it gave me such hope because her perspective is so generous and open-minded. And she is a person who approaches the world with a deep curiosity and sometimes naivety, but there's something in the way, in the earnestness and the authenticity of her naivety that doesn't feel like it's a, a 
a way of avoiding reality. It feels like it's a genuine perspective on reality, one that I can't have. I'm too jaded, but I love the opportunity to um, get close to it by reading her work. Mm. Um, And I find it hopeful. One, I can't stop thinking about the way that you say quagmire. Oh, yeah? You like it? I say, (laughs) I really like it. (laughs) I would say quagmire. Oh, what a quagmire, Carrie. (laughs) Two, and more importantly, yeah, I really like the way that you've framed it in terms of openness and generosity. And similarly, when I was thinking about the books that have given me hope throughout my life and the authors have that have given me hope, I think it is that real generosity of spirit and kindness and non-judgmental approach to character. And I think Jenny Offell sits in that category definitely and she even talked about that a bit in the interview but the other authors I was thinking of I mean first of all Middle March by George Eliot remains a real touchstone for me um, I did find some of the stretches of that book intensely boring and anyone who's picked <laughs> it up for the quarantine read just keep that in mind but it is worth getting through and it's because she treats people with intense care and generosity throughout that book all different kinds of people um, Marilyn Robinson I think also falls into that category. Her first novel, Housekeeping, remains one of my favorite books. And this love extends, I think, to her essays, which I would really recommend. There's a great collection of them called When I Was a Child, I Read Books. And again, this, you know, informed partially by her Christian worldview, I have to say, is a real kindness and generosity towards people and towards ideas. Elizabeth Strout, particularly Olive Kittredge, we've talked about how she really does seem to have a love for all of her characters and she doesn't judge them. She sort of puts them on the page and lets them do what they do and opens them up to you. Um, Alice Munro, who I've recommended recently, I think is a writer who does that too. And um, a book that I read very recently, which I talked about on the show, Girl, Woman, Other by Bernardine Evaristo, also fits into that category. She just forges an intense connection between the reader and people who are different from them. And that gives me great, great hope. Same here. I also think that actually that leads me on to saying books about psychology and by psychologists I find to be intensely hopeful books because they underline the power of change. And honestly, I find neuroplasticity to be one of the most hopeful ideas in the world. You know, the 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 fact that contrary to popular belief, it's actually never too late to change. If something in your life, if you're living in a way that's not serving you, it gets harder, sure, but the opportunity is always there if you want to take it. Like I recently read Stephen Gross's The Examined Life after we did a show about um, therapy and books, and he very kindly sent us copies, which was just adorable. Um, and my main takeaway from it was that it was this incredibly tender, hopeful treatise on the power for change, but also the power of intimacy and deep connection between two human beings as this like potential to be so healing and so... Just the the act of kind of paying attention in that way is incredibly hopeful, I think. Definitely. And, and speaking of change, when I was thinking about nonfiction books that I love, I am always given hope by nonfiction that offers a radical vision for how our future might be different and how we might change for the better. And even if that's just revealing some of the problems with our society right now or sort of diagnosing a problem, I, I find that incredibly hopeful. For instance, a really empowering book for me and a hopeful book for me to read was The People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, which offers a very different version of American history. And it's upsetting because you see the way that people have been 
oppressed in America and and really left out of history. But also, it gives you this radical vision for how we might rethink how we tell our own stories and how we might progress forward in a more equal and generous and humane way. I was also thinking about Ways of Seeing by John Berger. I was an art history student and um, one of my friends handed me this book and was like, you have to read this. And it completely changed the way I saw art and the way I saw the world. And it continues to influence me to this day. And I find it incredibly hopeful to have been given that gift of, of a new way of seeing the world. Yeah, that book is extraordinary. I mean, his writing in general is actually always full of hope because I think he does approach everything from this perspective of kindness and open-mindedness. He really is an open-minded, kind thinker, even when he's being a harsh critic, which is a wonderful talent. Well, Octavia, thank you for giving me so much hope today. Oh, babe, you too, right back at you. This is Carrie Plitt. I am back here with Octavia Bright and also Jenny Offill to talk about our book recommendations for this month. So Octavia, do you, do you want to start? I'd love to. I'm recommending a book called Wretchedness by Andrzej Tichy, which is translated from the Swedish by Nicholas Smalley. I'm still in the middle of it, but I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying it, partly because it's very experimental and weird. It's very urgent. There are no paragraphs. It's pretty much a solid stream of text that's very disorienting, propulsive, kind of intoxicating. And it's the thing that's holding my attention right now when I have been struggling to focus. It feels a bit like being grabbed by the hand and pulled through a crowd in a sweaty nightclub. Um, And so far, it's not really about plot so much as it's about replicating an experience of kind of a collective memory. Um, And I'm finding that in this very disorienting time, actually leaning into the disorientation is working. (laughs) Um, And also from this position of being stuck, very still. It feels great to read about a protagonist who's kind of roving through Europe and he doesn't feel constrained by anything actually at the moment. I mean, to, to summarize a bit more specifically, it's, it starts the opening as a young cellist meeting a spaced out junkie by the canal in Malmo. And their encounter is what triggers this tangle of memories and associations that kind of collapses the past with the present and takes us through a series of sometimes sordid, sometimes quite glorious scenes of inner city life. And it's political, it's asking questions about social mobility and prejudice, what it means to escape where you come from. It gets deep into the experience of addiction with a lot of understanding and empathy, which is something I always appreciate. And I think, I don't know, there's something about it. It's it's kind of unlike anything I've read before, but at the same time, it reminds me a bit of Georges Bataille, French writer who wrote a book called The Blue of Noon, which is vibing on a similar frequency, just with quite extreme characters having quite extreme politically charged experiences. Um, So if you're up for something very different, I would recommend it hugely and enthusiastically. That sounds great. Yeah, it's. I think. I think you would really enjoy it. I, it's not the kind of book I would read and think yeah. Carrie will love this. But I. No, I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't immediately sound like my kind of thing. But I'm trying to branch out. Yeah, and I. Th- I think this would be a good place to start that branching, my darling. Good. Thanks, <laughs> uh, Jenny. Could we have your recommendation, please? Sure. Um, I'm going to recommend a book by an Argentinian writer, Samantha Schweblin. And I just taught it to my MFA class, and it was so interesting to talk to them about it and hear all the different things. It's it's a very strangely uh, structured book 
in a way that I, I kind of delighted in teaching it to MFA students because I felt like it was the kind of structure that in a workshop normally would have been shot down as too complicated because it's about, it starts as this conversation and it's between a woman who's a mother and a young boy. And you slowly realize, no, she isn't his mother. Um, she's talking about her child and he's talking about his mother. And the woman who's telling the story is dying. And you start to hear um, how that came to pass. And it's a very strange, I think of it almost as like, uh, it's like an environmental ghost story. Like, you know, that something has happened in this place, in this land, but you don't know quite what it is. And one of the things that I love about it is that as the woman is trying to tell her story, the boy who's sitting next to her says quite abruptly at different times, this is not important or this is important. And he stops her and he makes her um, zero in on certain details and on other details where she remembers, for example, something about her mother. He says, your mother is not important. And later when she remembers something about what she thought was due on the grass, he says, this, this here, this is important. So it has this, to me, really ingenious metafictional element to it too, where you're constantly, you're very, it's a very page turner kind of story, but you're also very aware of the complexity of how stories are told and what it means to listen to a story and what it means to focus in on one part of it and not another. So I really highly recommend it. And I think she's just such an amazing talent. And I'm pleased to see that she's starting to be read a lot more outside of Argentina, but that's what I recommend. And she also, I believe, has a new book of short stories out too. So if you like this, there's more to read. It sounds amazing, and especially um, the way it seems to be thinking so deeply about conversations and what a conversation is and, and how, how you have it. Um, can you remind us of the title again? It's Fever Dream by Fever Dream. Samantha Schweblin. Thank you so much. Thank and you. I like hearing you talk about teaching writing, too. <laughs> that must change the way you think about novels. It does. I mean, it's a really strange time to be teaching right now because... I suddenly don't see them in class. We 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 um they call in through Zoom, and I see them in their apartments where they are. And we we always start the beginning of the class trying to sort of find out what's been going on with people. And I started asking them just to say something they noticed this week about this new strange time, and that was kind of fascinating to just kind of see what it was like in different places. So it's it's a good thing to be doing. I miss I miss them. This month, I'm going to recommend the short story collection Bad Behavior by Mary Gateskill, which I loved. And I, it's funny, I'm, I'm recommending it now, but I finished it before all of the stuff kicked off. So I feel like I read it in another lifetime, really. I'm, I'm having trouble even thinking about how to talk about it in, in the current context. But listeners of this podcast or anyone who has had a conversation with me in the last six months will know that I loved Mary Gateskill's long short story, This is Pleasure. Um, it confronted the Me Too movement and especially the sort of idea of complicity in a way that I don't think any other 
piece of fiction has been able to do yet. And it was it was published here in the UK as as a little book, which I would really recommend buying and reading if you haven't already. Um, but I have recommended it a number of times already. But I hadn't read any other Mary Gateskill, and I'd been hearing her name for years. And I asked around because I really wanted to read more after after loving this is pleasure so much. And the consensus was that the thing to read was bad behavior. It is a short story collection. It is not linked short stories, really, although you get the sense they're all kind of happening in the same world. Um, 1980s New York that's populated by lots of down and out sort of characters on the fringes. And I love how non-judgmental her writing is. She sort of just lays it out on the page. Um, and she's just so clearly very interested in characters and interested in people and often interested in people who you wouldn't normally expect to be protagonists in fiction. And it's also very funny. It's really sardonic. It's really understated. It's very deadpan. She's very, very good, as you might expect, on sex, on power, on relationships. And, and I feel that all of these stories are kind of about people negotiating power in relationships and the ways that those shifts and get renegotiated constantly. And I just really loved it. It was it was such a joy to read. And I would especially recommend if, if, if you're thinking about trying it, um, just reading the first story, which is called Daisy's Valentine. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Jenny Offill, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram and get in touch with us via email, litfriction at gmail.com. Also, please remember if you like what we do to rate, review and subscribe. Yes, please. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another mini-sode. Thank you to the internet. Thank God. It's been so lovely to see. <laughs> it's been so lovely to see your face today. I... The best. Yeah, it's really wonderful. Thank you so, for this time. Yeah, thank you. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. Mm-hmm.